Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and top leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. And hello, I'm Steve LeBeau. Welcome to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. And we have an interesting discussion. There's something that brings us together today. And it's the color yellow. I should say it's not just the color yellow. It's the, the event yellow. And we'll find out more about what that is. Our guests are Andy Kruger, who's into experience. I guess uh, um, you must, well, maybe we'll clear that up later. And then Christina Fortier, who's into creativity and fashion and uh, um, modeling. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, we'll start with you, Christina. What's your What's your story? Awesome. Great to be here, Steve. Thanks for having us. You bet. Uh, I am a creative director here in town, and my background um, is in design. And yes, I, I kind of started in the fashion world many moons ago um, and did kind of modeling. And well, What's kind of modeling? Well, you know, I started doing some print work as a child and then moved on to runway. And um, so, yes, I, well, I did. Well, runway, that's real modeling. I did model. This is true. <laughs> this is true. But I think what I was always so excited about, um, even as a child, having that business was the story. And the story that was put together through the clothing, the designer, the lights, the music, the everything about a runway show and all of the pieces and production. And that kind of inspired me to go into design. So I um, started as a graphic designer, worked for some really great companies out of college, um, one being private equity and a funny space for a creative to kind of land in this finance world. But I got to see so many cool startups and hear so many business stories and bring them to life visually. So I have always found storytelling to be a part of my journey. Wow. So bringing it to yellow, I mean, that's such an important piece for me is to hear other stories as well as share my own. And I think there's so much to be learned from from our stories. Boy, you mentioned uh, creative uh, private equity. Uh, creative accounting is what they usually call cheating. <laughs> so just just <laughs> yeah, to throw right. that out Visual, there. Visual uh, identity of brands looking for money and growth. That's okay. what I did. Okay. <laughs> the positive legal side. Okay, Andy, what's your story? Oh, boy. I don't think I have it as concise. Uh, but I basically, where I wound up is as a user experience designer now, so you're both um, designers, okay. Yeah, so we're, we we share that. Um, my story is that I think my experience going to events inspired me to become an event designer. So that's kind of where I began. My wife and I have been running craft fairs in town, the Craft Extravaganza and the Craft for the last 13 years. And that's something that we've done always on the side of full-time work. But uh, we started these events because there wasn't really anything like them in town at the time, kind of a, a craft fair for a younger audience um, with younger artists doing 
interesting and inspiring things with traditional materials and techniques and bringing new things in for themselves. And of course, it's hard to believe that because right now we're sort of in the middle of another craft renaissance and you see this, there's so many boutiques and shows at every brewery every other week. And um, this has all been very exciting to be a part of. But um, that, like I said, was always kind of on the side. And so while I worked in many different places and eventually worked full-time in events for a few years, I ultimately decided that wasn't what I wanted to be doing full-time and went back to school um, actually locally here at Prime Digital Academy, which is a software development and design boot camp, and switched careers very recently, just this year, to become wow. a user experience designer. And that's what I'm doing now for Boy. a living. Congratulations. Thank Bro, you. No, I was going to say, that's that's a new experience for you. Right, exactly. And it's not without precedent in my life. I have done um, some web development work and some coding work, not professionally, but I've always been interested in software development, and I've always seen myself as a creative person. I've always uh, drawn. I did comics in my college newsletter. I was on my college radio Then it's not just you seeing yourself as a creative person, because there are a lot of people that see themselves as like, you know, the, the best ever in any field, and they're not. I never thought of myself as even good, let alone the best, but I certainly <laughs> but, was out but, there making work. But the thing is, you did it. You did it. You don't just have to imagine that you're doing it. So quite a broad experience, and, and we should explain the mystery. Yellow is the event put on by Monocat Data, uh, a.k.a. Jasmine Russell, who's doing an old day-long or pretty much a day-long conference uh, coming up on September 14th. I think that's a Friday. Mm-hmm. I think it yes, is. it's on Friday the 14th and some great breakouts. So we're um, leading two of the breakout sessions. And, and the theme of the, the conference is? A good question. I can't recall. <laughs> I'm a bad spokesman for the event at this point. I well, can't recall I, if there was an overarching well, theme, and there may be. Well, I'm, I'm connecting I'm, creativity with technology. Definitely, I, I, I think that's right because I'm a media sponsor for the group. We're all in this together. It's all very one sided. So I'm not going to ask you any objective questions at all. I have to say that I'm new to Yellow. I actually haven't attended before, so I wasn't sure if that was kind of a statement of the goal of the event in general or if it was specific to this year. I'm also very new to Yellow as well. This will be my first year. So you know, we're all new to Yellow. Come so, on uh, and be new with us. It's all about <laughs> can't wait to go there. So do you have your talks all planned out? Did you, do you write them down or you just put it on the back of your hand or, or how do you prepare for presentations? Such a great question, Steve. I was ask, asking Andy for some tips in the hallway. I can um, see his, he's wrote all the he way He has up his it arm. all on his arm already, which he can't wash his hands for a week, so that's going to be challenging. Well, but. some artists don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, for me, I, I am a visual designer, so I always kind of start stuff visually. And I knew I needed to tell a story visually for me to have kind of an emotional connection to this story. And my talk is on empathy. And how oh, I don't care about empathy. Drives our <laughs> <laughs> empathy and connecting technology. So, well, th- that is strange because you know you always talk about the left brain, right brain, but it's more like the brain and the heart, really, that 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 people have disconnected. So, how does empathy play a role in technology? Well, for me, I think from a user experience perspective, absolutely. When people are designing or developing technology, if we get so far into the process without remembering the human. In the context of the development and the design, we're hitting a miss. That's an antipathy. Sure is. <laughs> Steve, you can't use so many big words. Okay, I'm sorry. That means you, you hate it. Like, I've hated my computer many times. 
And now, now that I'm older and I've grown, I, I've learned to hate my smartphone. Yeah, I, I I have a journey. That's what I say. I don't I don't really hate. That's a that's a passion word that I try not to use. Right. Okay. Well, then you're in your field. Parent so. of young children. So <laughs> <laughs> same here. Like, which words can we choose to use? Um, you know, as as developing kind of this emotional intelligence. But yes, for All me, right. empathy is is something that I kind of I found this idea of I think I am an empathetic person I kind of have been more of that person to feel everything around me a fairly neurotic very anxious um and I knew that in my design work I was missing something and I started to as a designer just start rolling out designs client needs this do it get some feedback change it and I was missing something so I really sought out um I was freelancing kind of sought out something more found myself um, this company that I'm at right now called BI Worldwide, but they're based on behavioral economics. Behavioral economics. Now, I can guess what that might mean. So there's some amazing research on why humans make the decisions they make. And why do they behave a certain way? Exactly. So there's a lot of different theories. Let's talk about goal gradient theory. That's a theory in behavioral economics. Goal, so, goal gradient. Goal gradient. So when you see a goal and you see your progress to that goal and you feel like you can attain that goal and you're almost there, you're going to push at your hardest. So if there are some visuals or representations of your goal, say a progress report or something, you can see to feel yourself being able to attain that goal or seeing attaining that goal, you will perform higher. Really? So... I came on as a creative director to BI Worldwide, combining my love of science. My background was pre-med, and then I went into art. Well, you went from the the yep. the, uh, the science the boardwalk to art. I know. I thought I only could go to college to go into a profession, a, a real profession, and I couldn't consider art a real profession at that time. So I entered pre-med, psychology, neuroscience focus. Found the art department because I love art. Have always loved to create. Mm-hmm. Couldn't choose, did both, and then fell into working in art. And this has been the first time, almost 15 years into my career, that I've been able to connect the psychology and the art side of my brain into Ah. my current creative direction. So with that, all of these decisions that we're now studying how humans make their decisions, we're designing, we're developing communications campaigns around these theories of behavioral economics, we have to also remember the empathy side of things and how someone feels and what they they think, what a user is thinking when they're in a scenario. So what do wow. they think, feel, and do when they're reacting to what we've made for them? Well, I like I like that trio, uh, think, do, and feel. I, I, I like working in that. And those must be the same thing you work on, Andy, if experience is all those things. The experience, what our world tends to be is too cognitive, where they just look for the information and not the feelings. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of similarities between the two of us. One other interesting thing that Christina talked about finding kind of that connection between business or that right side of the brain, thinking logically, scientifically with creativity. I had a similar but maybe opposite experience in school where I um, also thought that I would have liked to be an artist professionally but didn't see my way to making that a career. And so I ended up majoring in business, specifically entrepreneurial studies, Um, and so rather than actually landing in a creative profession right away, when I graduated, I, um, 
sort of trended towards business and trying to find something to do to make money, not because I love making money so much, but just because that's what I saw as as a viable thing to do as an adult. But then to to create money to to sure to create uh, economic (laughs) opportunities, actually, for artists is is what I landed on. Mm. It was through running the event. Um, When we first started our craft fairs, I originally thought that this could be a path to me to becoming a full-time artist. But what I realized over time was that I actually enjoyed and was better at running the event itself and, and making uh, this space say, for artists. I was going to say a con artist, but that's not exactly... <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no, I mean, it could have been, but we started with the the very explicit goal of how can we make this successful for the artists that are taking part, not just coming in and kind of making a quick dollar off of it, but rather how can we build something that's successful long-term? And then to complete that circle, you need to have the people that come in to look at the art and buy it. So that's the user experience. Exactly. Well, and actually one thing that points out uh, is a really interesting notion of the fact that there usually is more than one group of users. So for our craft fairs, for example, we do have the, the artists themselves who are one group, and then we have the consumers who come to the show and shop as another. You could also think of people in the media as a third group. How do we reach out and talk to these people? And um, I pride myself on actually having been able to get us on TV for every show that we've done in the past 20 years. So I'm I'm kind of in the PR industry as well. And and this is something my entrepreneurial training actually prepared me for very well as I'm able to wear all these different hats and do the marketing and the strategic planning and the actual execution as well. Well, that, that, I think that's a very strong insight to, to realize that there are multiple users and, and therefore you have to create uh, something that can be seen in many ways. Mm-hmm, for sure. And to actually develop that type of empathy with all the different user groups and make something that is successful for all of them, I think is the crux of a very interesting series of problems in user experience design. Wow. I mean, it, it almost takes away the empathy to call it user experience design because that sounds so dry and scientific. But yet, uh, how do you get the heart in, into science? I mean, the science is famous for not, well, for many years, they didn't even recognize consciousness as a, as a topic. And I think empathy is a, a skill that we can grow and develop. It's a skill. It's a skill. I, I do really think that it's something that you can have basic tools and knowledge about how to be more empathetic and put those into practice. And I think it comes down to noticing and observing the little things around you, not getting inundated by our technology, inundated by scrolling and scrolling all day long. Put your phone down in an elevator and observe. Observe users. Observe who your market is, who you're designing and developing things for. You're talking about people. In general, people. Observe people around you. I know it's a tricky, tricky subject. Well, most subjects... (laughs) You study things and facts and, you know, squares and, like you say, designs. But people, uh, well, that's why you you divide them up into those three uh, little categories, the behavior, the The thoughts, and the the feelings. I like that. So do you try to keep those in balance or what? For me, it's when you're looking at someone, you're thinking about how they're thinking about what you're having them experience. Say it's an app. Say we've developed an app. We have Susan. Susan's in her mid-40s, newly divorced. It's a dating app. Okay, let's do that. She has never, she's a little technology anxious, not the most savvy, but is ready to give this app a try. But she's, but her anxiety to go on a date is stronger than her uh, anxiety. Exactly. So what is Susan feeling? 
besides the experience she's going to feel with her app, what is she feeling externally? What is she hearing around her? What has she heard from others' success or non-successes? What are the ways we can look at these people utilizing what we are designing in a holistic way? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are they hearing? And then how are they going to act? How are they acting upon it? How are they currently acting in whatever scenario we, we put them in? May that be interacting with the app or trying to reach out to a friend to see if they know someone to date. So all of those are their actions around their personality and their user type. So we can learn to be more empathetic if we develop that skill of looking at customers and clients as we're developing things for technology. But it almost seems kind of um, you know utilitarian to, to just – Let's get empathy so that we can get them to buy this. And let's get empathy so they'll they'll enjoy our app enough to go to this craft fair and buy some art and I like to th- I like to think that it's um being hopeful and listening. And I I'm a huge fan of hearing stories and telling stories and I think similarly um Steve here with his uh Andy. Mm-hmm. I'll be, I'll be Steve. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Okay. Similar to Andy in the in the craft world, of telling the stories of your artists. Um, I have a podcast too where I tell the stories of female business owners that are out there trying to really make it work and um, share their stories and experiences. So I think hearing people where they are, where their stories are, who who they connect from, can help train empathy for people you don't know. And I think that that's an important factor when you're developing stuff as an artist or as a user or as a communicator, ad ad agency, whatever you may be developing, the more you know about those around you, the more questions you ask, the more you learn and feel, you can really train yourself to feel more in that person's shoes. Hmm. But then if you feel too much, well, go ahead, Andy. Well, I was just going to add that, you know, while these users may be our customers in some cases and we are trying to get their money you can't develop empathy from a mercenary standpoint if you're really just going at it, as you said, uh, from that kind of place of, well, how do we how do we develop enough empathy that we can design something that we can really fleece them for everything that they're worth? <laughs> then <laughs> it's, it's not really going to work. Empathy has to kind of come from the heart as well. Uh, and ideally, you can hold those two thoughts in your mind simultaneously that while we are trying to get something from this person, it's not strictly a, a friendly relationship necessarily. It doesn't mean that it's an adversarial relationship either. Uh, it's just a, a customer relationship. And I think that's um, one of the real places that that term user came from as opposed to anything else. Like you mentioned, you know, users are just people, right? We're just saying people ultimately. Mm-hmm. But um, you can think of people in terms of uh, this this is a customer or this is a client, uh, this is an ATM versus, well, this is a real person, like Christina was saying, and, and this is why we develop things like personas um, and user experience design where we're putting some statistics around a person, that average type of user or a specific type of user so that we can really start to think of them as a person and not just as a revenue source. Well, or, or the average person. That's one of the That's one of the myths that I tend to hate in particular is like, the average person. Now, if we take our average height, 
You know, let's say that it's 5'10", and that none of us is 5'10". If you were a designer, while their average height is 5'10", let's make a bunch of clothes for a person that's 5'10". They would fit anybody. Right. Actually, I caught myself as I started to say that because this is a part of my talk as well, that <laughs> really with user experience design, you're not designing for an average person. Ideally, you're designing for an extreme. You're designing for a very unusual person in terms of uh, marketing. Um, it's It's by designing for an extreme for a really edge case that you can actually arrive at a design that is better for everyone. Um, one of the really frequently used examples and one that I'll be giving in my talk, spoiler alert, uh, is the story of the OXO smart grips. And so, you know, these are something that a lot of people are familiar with, um, but the where that came from is designing for extremes, not averages. Okay, well, we're going to go to take an extreme break right now. Actually, just kind of an average break. But and we we'll just be- handled my whole talk, so we can just... Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll be it. back. We'll be back right after this. Synapse, think tank of the air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back here on Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, and boy, we're thinking, we're not only thinking, we're teasing, but we're being very empathetic about it. I mean, we care about you, the listener out there, don't we? Absolutely. You can get a little saccharine. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, So I was just saying that um, the the OXO smart grips, these are an idea that came from um, actually uh, two designers, a pair of them, and the wife had uh, arthritis. And so... Um, as her husband was watching her try to peel some potatoes or apples, depending on which story you read, um, he could see that she was struggling to do this. This was with, of course, uh, before they were invented, an older kind of metal style um, peeler. So it's difficult to hold. It's kind of slippery right. and and just and just hurts. They're painful. If you've ever used one of these old-fashioned peelers, which I, I grew up in the 80s, so I was old enough to recall these. Oh, we definitely had those. <laughs> they, they cut into Peeling your hand. potatoes is not my favorite activity. Right, they're... They're cutting your hand while they cut the the fruit or vegetable, and um and from that came this idea of boy let's let's develop something that's easier to hold that's easier to use and although it was developed with a specific use case in mind, obviously once it was introduced and people saw it and started using it, it was just a clearly better solution for a problem that was out there that wasn't necessarily recognized widely as being a problem. Hmm. The um one of my pet peeves are rules. People make up rules and say, here's the way to do it. Here's the way to do it. And then what you find yourself doing is just following the rules rather than looking at, at what your purpose is and what you're, you're supposed to be doing. Um, one of the greatest videos I've ever seen, not for any reason other than this message, uh, Jacques Pepin, the, uh, the French chef that worked with um, um, on public TV and everything, he has a video saying, never follow a recipe exactly. Recipes are guidelines. If you follow it exactly, you're just not uh, responding properly. You're not empathetic to the food that you're using, the flour. Everything's different every day. And so all these things just have to be um, uh, done deliberately and with attention. When you follow the rules, you don't have to think. And I think that's the problem with rules. Mm. 
Pepin would be disappointed in me. I'm a recipe follower, at least the first time, because no, I want to have a baseline to judge my future attempts against. And if I don't follow it, I won't remember I'm what I did. You. Feedback on my cooking when I don't follow recipes have uh, creative execution, let's say that. Well, I'm sending a note to Jacques. <laughs> but it's true that you can't follow rules blindly. I think... The, the flip side of that is that you have to have developed a certain amount of knowledge and experience in the subject matter uh, to be able to break from the rules. And as an experienced chef, he's able to do that because he does understand the ingredients and proportions, uh, I think, probably innately by, by the point that he was doing that show. Um, it, it's one of the axioms of user experience design as well that you want to start with a problem that you're trying to solve rather than starting with the solution. One of the problems that software development can run into is that you start with a clear idea of what to do from the start. And if you are kind of defining that as a rule as you move forward, instead of being open to change and open to feedback and iteration, then you're not typically going to end up with the best result. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. You have axioms. I would say so. Yeah, it depends on who you ask. They may have different ideas about what those are. It's still a relatively young field in general, but this well, is something... Well, that's great because then each person can make up their own rules and their own axioms. Absolutely. Maybe that's the way it should be. <laughs> so the same thing in designing clothes, right? There, there are different ways to do it. Well, you can follow a rule of how to design or, just as bad, make your boss happy or whoever you know picks out the fashions... But you also have to think of the person, what is it like to actually wear this stuff, right? Is that where empathy comes in? How do you feel when you dress properly? Yeah, I think that there is a lot of feeling in clothing design. And from from my perspective, I have those pieces that exude different energies in my mood for the day. Um, I tend to dress very black and white. My entire closet is black and white. But with that, I have pieces that move differently and are cut differently and feel different on my body to help exude a different feeling. So I would say that those designers thought about the end user and somebody wearing that and how they felt um, and who they are and what shoes they're walking in that day. But so, yeah, branding has a lot to do um, with how we think about others and feel. I mean, I don't think every single design decision is ever made, always made with empathy. Um, but if we can strive to be a little bit more aware and notice things, I think that helps the problem solving too. So, mm -hmm. you know, Andy's talking about developing software and working through a problem and already having kind of a solution at the end. Well, finding those problems um, sometimes come in mysterious ways. I know my little kids often come up with the craziest things and we're in the car and the craziest ideas. And I, I think there's something about um, thinking through those young eyes and noticing those things through our non-adult eyes. Um, what are our kids thinking? I mean, you know, we're in traffic and I'm angry, usually not swearing, but sometimes. <laughs> and my children are like, why don't they just make flying cars? Why don't they, you know, why don't we do this? And it, they, they pose such interesting questions that are sometimes really great solutions um, to, to larger problems. So I think trying to think a little bit younger and be a little bit fresher um, and trust our young talents on our team, too. That's that's a big thing. As a creative director, I'm constantly looking at my team, um, especially the people coming in from from those younger eyes or or new and fresh to, to the business. And how are they seeing and where are they reacting um, to well, the process? It's so. good to have kids. You, you think differently. Yeah, it's 
very true. I, I do think parenting has has helped me see things differently. Yeah, same here. I, I have two young girls, and um, how old? Not, or I'm sorry, ten <laughs> and six, uh, going on seven this month. And yeah, I've I've certainly appreciated that new perspective that that brings. They having kids also gives you the license to act like a kid again. And not that I ever stopped. You can ask my wife, but uh, it's it's really no, you nice. Have a excuse, right? I, I can absolutely excuse it by. Well, this is for the kids. I bought all these My Little Ponies because now I can play with them with the my children. daughters. Uh, but it really you, you forget as you grow up. You forget what that's like, what that experience is like, what that mindset is like, and what how it really felt to experience the world in this wide-eyed way build habits and rules like you're saying and we we just go through our day-to-day um following these processes that are set up that we don't even realize that we we follow and kind of get into that habituation and miss seeing some of those key things that we could be solving for the world what sort of problems are out there if we just notice a little bit more um, well a good problem is one that, of course, no one has solved. And so then you you don't have an easy way to handle it. You have to kind of stop and, you know, jump into the void, Mm -hmm. right? That's where creativity begins. Right. And that's why I think it is so important to think outside the box, like you were saying, uh, to be able to really ask those silly questions or say, hey, let's try looking at this in this different way because – you not knowing the answer at the end of time means you don't know what the what questions to even really ask to begin with. So there's no such thing as a bad question or a bad line of reasoning. You follow it to its reasonable conclusion and see how that goes and then try something else. And that's also kind of the core of that iterative design process. And, and that's how we've approached our event design as well, um, which, by the way, is, is what I'm going to be talking about mostly is how to take and apply these principles of user experience design to event design or to other kinds of design that you might do as a creative person or organization. And uh, I would propose that being able to take and iterate and develop and constantly learn, even if you think that you have found the solution, these things change so quickly. The world changes, your users may change, whatever users means for you. And it's always important to maintain that flexible mindset and be open to what might be different now that you didn't take into account the first time you were solving for this particular problem. Hmm. Now, how do you know when you've solved a problem? You don't, <laughs> I think, um, ever entirely. You, you get paid? Yeah, sometimes um, you get paid whether or not you solve it, depending on how you work. That's that's why politics is so dangerous. <laughs> exactly. Right? Um, but you know, there are metrics that you can use and, um, knowing your definition of success actually is very important going into the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, because there's more than one solution usually. Right. So for software, um, in particular, there's a concept of the definition of done and the way that this is written, um, when you're making your plan for how you're going to go about addressing a solution is when it's solved, what will be true? And you have to write this definition before you know what the actual solution is. And again, it's because you're writing the solution for how does it address the problem? How does this problem go away? Not specifically, but in general, what's, what, how are my users going to feel or what is going to be different in their lives as a result of the solution that we're going to implement? So rather than come up with a solution to no problem, Exactly. That, that's kind of oddball thinking. Now, now, what you're talking about is the designing for user experience. Is that related to the kind of a 
big popular fad right now, design thinking. Is that it's absolutely related? Uh, design thinking, I would say. Uh, is at the core of user experience design. And it's I'm going to be probably throwing out a lot of terms like that, design thinking, user experience design. Customer experience is how it would probably be termed for what I was doing in the event space because it's mostly um, physical and with humans instead yeah, of and digital and with CIW, screens. CIW, we do employee engagement and employee mm-hmm. experience. So oh, really? engagement and experience um, are a lot of times interchanged. Um, because they say, what, two-thirds of employees are not engaged at any given time. One third are ready to quit. One third, they don't care. Your most engaged moment as an employee is day one. <laughs> is that right? That is your highest engagement level is day one. And it goes downhill from there? <laughs> Absolutely. Gosh, let's add jobs up there with so rules. So make sure if you hire someone, you actually have things and remember they're coming in. Because um, you Boy. can really blow engagement out of the water. Good. Now, now, is that the average yeah, back to your average user. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the average user, their first day, because I can't believe it's true for everyone. Research into st- statistics show that the highest engaged level is your first day. But, but there's always exceptions, right? There's some there's, people that maybe the third day or maybe the third year. And oftentimes a first day can start before the first day at the office. Mm-hmm. It could be a first interaction or a first correspondence oh. with a company. So the, the varying theories of when first day actually begins in an employee life cycle um, it, it varies. Gosh, do have you identified the factors that uh, promote engagement? Recognition, being recognized frequently, often early um, for jobs well done amongst then, your uh, peers as well as your managers. A, a pat on the back or a little honor, a little piece of paper uh, that, that honors you. you. Uh, it doesn't have to be ceremonious, um, but yeah, handwritten thank you, a note, a mention, um, a so EIW has a platform that we bring on to big Fortune 5 and 1,000 companies that we, um, Fortune 500 and Fortune 1,000 companies that we put in a software so that peers can recognize each other through e-cards and technology that makes it easy to share with a coworker that they had a great experience, that meeting, you did a great job, thanks for all the prep, all of those sorts of little things. Um, but, if, but if it's so programmed, is it sincere? Because the users are sending it to each other, yes. And, you know, we're finding that there's a lot of really great engagement coming out of that. Um, and employees are feeling more engaged with their employers. They're having happier work lives. And if you feel more engaged, you are more you engaged? are more engaged. Ah. So just get them to have that so feeling. So it comes back to that feeling and just, that so heart. The, so <laughs> the feeling that they're being recognized is, is as good as being recognized. Yes. So we try to keep the authentic recognition in there. I don't know if there's a recognition <laughs> bot yet, but somebody will develop that. Wow. So, okay, so recognition is one thing. Uh, I, I remember hearing that if you make friends at work, then you're more mm. likely to be loyal to that workplace. I think coworkers and teams, there's team statistics, and it really depends on the organization and the mantra of who the organization is. I think that there is a lot of... Um, BI has a, a theory, 12 rules of engagement. There are 12 oh, different rules. The so rules. Rules. <laughs> but one is be cool. So if your organization is cool, the coolness factor to a certain segment of employees is very important at work. If work is cool, that matters. If I can see my future, if I know my company is doing great things and giving back and there's some philanthropy, there are a lot of different factors that make up that happy employee. But it doesn't work on most employees. Right? Uh, two-thirds are still disengaged. They haven't called me. 
They have you haven't okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good no good that's good a good pitch commercial for the company, for you. but yes. no, really truly, I think that there is that uh, there's that amazing way to connect with with the humans that we don't even know. And like I don't know, I'm so intrigued by being able to connect with with other people through their stories and hearing um even if I'm not intimately involved with um someone hearing stories through clients that this works and this changed someone's life or hearing reviews or testimonials on something that you've developed or designed, it, it really is great to, to get some feedback. I guess feedback in general, I'm a big feedback person, positive, negative, give it to me so I can kind of adjust and recourse, but be blunt if you need to. Yeah. It feels good to hear whether or not something is working. And if it isn't, you want to hear that too. So because that means they're at least paying attention to you. Absolutely. And you're getting at an important point implicitly that I want to state explicitly, yeah. which is that different things work on different people, right? So like, you know, you mentioned some some things work for you. Recognition is good. Um, and for others, it is uh, it really financial. They're looking for that money. For others, it is that, that it is a cool company. That's a good place to work. And they like the culture. Um, and, and this is another important thing to keep in mind when you're designing for whoever you're designing for that. Different groups are different. And so what works in one place isn't necessarily going to be able to be copy and pasted over to another because the users that you're dealing with really define what is the correct solution. So there is no one size fits all. No rules. <laughs> Once again. The, the rules are very flexible. You, you just More like a formula that you apply maybe differently to each case. This is something that I find really interesting as well because there are certain people I've spoken with in user experience that are concerned that robots are going to take our jobs. And there are probably people in every field that are concerned that automation is going to be taking over. And, and for some, that's true. Um, but the reason I feel that uh, this kind of user experience design can only be done by people is because robots can't think. Uh, machines can't feel. And hey, it takes a human a to design for a human. A door. <laughs> so that happened. They can totally do that. They can do that. And the robots can have all the door opening jobs as far as I care. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we're doing is is solving problems. Like I mentioned, there's a problem and we're solving it. So whether you call that, you know, to get back at the, uh, the kind of word of the day um, stuff, whether you call it user experience, service design, customer experience, you're talking about um, different kinds of design thinking techniques. It really is just about solving real problems for real people. Hmm. So robots can play chess, but they don't have any fun doing it. That's right. Hmm. Yeah, I think the fun factor is huge. That is, I mean, I like to say that life should be fun. We should find our fun times and moments. And well, pursuit of happiness is guaranteed, at least by the Declaration of Independence. There we go. Let's go pursue some fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're here. We should tell people uh, how to. How do you get tickets to go see Yellow on uh, September 14th? We're talking here with um, uh, Andy Kruger and Christina Fortier who are, will be speakers at the Yellow Conference on September 14th. Um, but can you go on the Monocat Data website and find tickets? Yes, there are still tickets available. Um, Good. Yeah, and come see us speak. It should be a really engaging, fun, interdiscipline experience. I, I do think that Monocat is all about thinking differently and um, with performance backgrounds to like dance backgrounds with mm -hmm. technology. And I think the background of who they are as a company um, is really intriguing. So they've brought forth a really dynamic group of creatives from a lot of different genres to just start this conversation and keep the thinking going. And I think that that's amazing. Right. It, it, it sounds when you hear the words 
the the interface between uh, technology and creativity. It it almost sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. And I guess that's why uh, Yellow is there to prove that point. We'll prove more points when we return here on Synapse Think Tank of the Year. Synapse Think Tank of the Year. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back with Synapse Think Tank of the Air. I'm Steve LeBeau. We're here with Andy Kruger, the experience guy, and Christina Fortier, the design, fashion, psychology, uh, employee engagement uh, Just woman. Just call me a storyteller. I think that's <laughs> a storyteller. the best description of all of the things I do. It's been one giant story, Steve. Well, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of ambivalent about the idea of stories because you hear it so much. And usually it's with the synonym uh, always changing the narrative. So he's changing his story. What, 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 what do you mean by a story? I think for me, stories are just a connection. And any way you can connect all of the experiences that you've had in your life and tell that, that's, that's a powerful story. So I, I don't mind being named a storyteller. I find, <laughs> it, I find it empowering. I mean, I, I, you can, you can pull everything into it. Absolutely. Cause I am, have a very diverse background and a very diverse current career path in all of the things that I'm doing. You know, I'm creative directing. I'm a wardrobe stylist. Both are very full-time jobs. And I'm also a podcast host. So I think that there's, I'm not ready to make a selection, nor do I want to make a selection. And I like having a diversified career. But oftentimes when people are like, so what do you do? I'm like, so how much time do you have? <laughs> right? So for me, just this concept of storytelling, I've needed a compass. I've needed something to direct all of the things and the reasons I'm doing all of the things that I do. And to me, at the bottom line, it has really come down to I'm either telling a story, helping someone tell their story, Mm. or drafting a story that hasn't been heard yet. You know, that's really what I do in a nutshell. So, Have you ever been bored? No, you, not really. I, I can't imagine I'll you being I'll just start bored. a new thing, like crafting. <laughs> I don't know, Steve, maybe I'll have a booth next week. I just like to learn and keep going. And huh. Well, it's good. Do you, do you, I was at an event, a networking event, in which the speaker said, well, it was almost like this. When I was born, I had this vision of my life. I was going to do this and this and this, and then I was going to have an international company. And, and that, by golly, that's what I've done. And it's like, man, I don't know what I'm doing next week. <laughs> so, but, but you sound like, so you didn't plan all this variety in your life. It just kind of I fell tend, upon you. I say yes a lot. I think that's my, um, one of my largest strengths and one of my largest weaknesses is I don't say no. Um, even if I don't know how to do something, I'll say yes and figure it out. Well, that's the American uh, way. <laughs> so I was kind of raised to just have that thinking, the idea of you are capable, um, it may take some time and practice to learn a skill, but you are capable. Say yes and figure it out. Um, help people when they need help. Say yes. So I've just said yes a lot, which has <laughs> opened a lot of random doors. Very positive to, thinking. To the journey of, of my life. And some of those yeses have not been the world's most positive experiences. But out of those, I've learned things that have, have shifted mindset. And I think that that's powerful. So your next chapter... Uh, always begins with a cliffhanger at the end of this one. What will she do next? What's the next thing going on in her life? 
apparently yellow in public speaking. This, <laughs> this is my first time um, speaking in front of a crowd. And I, I did kind of set a goal out to to do some more public speaking and get out there. Well, I think I can help you with that. Neurotically tell my story in all of my um, mannerisms that will come through. But Cause, really, Because we're looking for a neurotic person to tell a story. One <laughs> <laughs> of my I'm events. Your gal. <laughs> Good. So have you done public speaking, Andy? I have, yes. I, I, I also had a podcast for a while, so we're a trio of, of current or former podcasters. Um, for a similar reason, yeah, I like to tell stories. I like to meet people, and, and I also have trouble saying no to things, which is actually, I mean, it's stood me in good stead, I think, for the most part, but it also gets me in trouble. I overcommit uh, from time to time, but that's that's how I test my limits is by stretching beyond them and, and growing into them. and And also... I, the flip side of that is I've had to develop a good eye for when to say no. Um, there's um, a book called The Dip, which is a lot about this idea of um, knowing that all things are going to naturally ebb and flow. And so in in this current down cycle of this thing that I'm doing, this dip, is, dip, in this is that dip that I'm in, okay. is it is it a sign right now that I should quit what I'm doing or that I need to push through and – the, the, there's this very subtle difference there sometimes. Okay, hmm. that's going on my reading list. See, I just <laughs> have so many on. different things going on. So the dips are and happening usually at varied times. So whenever there's a dip in one, I'm picking up a different hat. Boy. So, you know, that's been my goal to kind of avoid mm-hmm. that, that dark hole is to never have something well, not going on. And, and you read. <laughs> you reading read. is so important. I reading mean, is fundamental. Well, but it uh, seems to be disappearing. I mean, these days, uh, well, you're, you're raising kids. Do your kids read? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, you force them to read. No, that'd be the worst <laughs> way to get a kid to read. I think actually, don't get me started on schools, but this is, um, you know, one thing that's, it's, it's challenging. And I, I really um, have empathy with the teachers and, and administrators on this because reading and other things um, are very important, but the more you kind of force a child to do something like that, the more it can rob the joy of doing it and that happiness that they get from just doing it on their own. Um, I'm very fortunate that, um, well, I'm, I'm happy that my my oldest daughter, certainly my 10-year-old loves to read, and my six-year-old now, um, who's just starting uh, first grade this, this fall, actually this week, um, as of the time of recording, uh, also really is getting into it. And I think the main reason that that's been successful in our family is just, is because I read. It's the fact that I do read because the kids you're, don't listen to what yeah, we say. Yeah, it's a mirrored behavior, right? They're seeing, you're making the time, you're calling that out as an important thing in life. So therefore, they're like, well, this is just what we do. Absolutely. And they have it as part of their lives so soon that they can't get rid of it because we've already, that's just what we do. Mm-hmm. This is what we do. You if, tricked them. I totally <laughs> tricked them. This is my parenting skill. <laughs> parenting book out soon. Trick them into having a great life. No. Do do, do they have uh, cell phones yet? Uh, smartphones? No, mine do not. No, but we do have the tablets. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, and I'm learning that my kids are gamers. Um, I am not a gamer, uh, but my husband is. Mm. So I feel like video games have also reading, but video games have also been a part of their culture. And they're grow up growing upbringing, but in a really cool way. Like my kids go to coding school. So coding nice. school. So um, there's a school called Code Ninjas, um, and they teach it in kind of a ninja black belt way. They teach coding, and they do scratch coding, and mm-hmm. they do. Um, there's a game called Roadblocks, 
and Minecraft. And those are two coding um, based games that kids can kind of develop on their own. But nonetheless, I'm like, if they're going to play games, I want them to know a little bit more behind the game. So we kind of instill this culture of learning. Yes, have your free time, have your tablet time, but know that there's something behind the inner workings of that. And do you want to know more? Do you have any questions? Because I have questions. Let's learn about it together. Um, So that's been a fun journey through taking that idea of, oh, video games is sucking their brains away. Like, no, let's there's so much that goes into game development design. And I think because I wear that creative hat every day, I know what goes into that. So mm. we don't have to think our kids, my kids are eight and five, my five-year-old codes. Like we don't <laughs> have to think about our kids as they're not ready for that yet when we just have to meet them at where they are. Boy, well, that's interesting. So they can be engaged in a game, but then they can stand back and be engaged in the making of a game. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. So uh, reframing what a game is, it's kind of like when you're trying to sell a picture, and if you tell a story about the picture, it makes the picture more interesting sometimes. Right. Yeah. It's there. There are different ways of engaging with art, and I, I, our family, I think, has the same dynamic as yours, where I'm the gamer, my wife is not. <laughs> um, but I, I have this other view on screen time, which is I'd way rather have my kids playing a game, pretty much any game, than watching TV or a movie, because at least. They're active, they're engaged, they're doing something, um, and I'd rather have them be an active participant, um, even if that's just you know tapping gems and making things disappear. Uh, I'd rather have them doing that than doing something else. And our kids also play Roblox now. This is apparently the thing. This is the thing. And and this is an online game that they play with other people. And my so now my two daughters play it together, and it's in a way for someone of my generation to see. Two kids looking at screens individually in the same room uh, can be kind of sad because it seems like they're not playing together, but they are playing together. They're talking to each other and they're engaged because they're playing this same game together and and, and they're learning about their world well, in and this way. Well, and it's so interesting. My kids play Roblox together too, and it's so interesting watching them play this. And I think because I am a creative thinker and I have this basis, I'm able to, to think about the benefits um, of that experience for them and... One thing that's come out of this, though, has been online correspondence. So they can chat within these games. So our eight-year-old was chatting with a neighbor girl, and something happened where the neighbor girl, we have um, a rule, no iPads before 7 a.m. and no iPads after 7 p.m. So they can still have their download time, eye breaks, you know, morning time. We do not need to add that to the morning. Evening time, we need to, like, read, breathe, have a bath, like, chillax before we're inundated. Chillax. Chillax. Chill and relax. No, I, I, I got I, it. I, I got it. Okay, just in case. <laughs> it's just For not those part of, of you. It's just not part of my vocabulary. Well, add it in. Better, <laughs> add it in. Pull it out. With young kids, you need to be able to chillax. <laughs> um, and I make up words all the time. So, but that's creativity. Yeah, no, it really is just one of those things. But that has shown us they had a little altercation, and it shown it show, showed us a moment of they don't have cell phones, but yet they can still communicate so we had to step back and kind of explain some things both I brought both girls into a room and I said okay with the mom and the mom the other mom didn't even know she could chat or anything through her iPad because she's just so removed from what she does on her tablet and we just talked through the experience and this neighbor girl thought that Ava wasn't getting back to her and that she was mad at her and really her iPad was just off so just kind of bringing forth some of that conflict resolution that's already happening online and in their lives and social media like our kids are going to be inundated with these things so 
we needed to talk to them about that. And I know we're getting a little off topic, but that, that really is part of technology. Well, it, and- it, it, it sounds like what you're doing as parents is kind of what teachers ought to be doing in school, is that uh, in the old days, before schools, kids just imitated their parents and that prepared them for life, right? Because the parents were doing things you do when you try to survive. And now... Uh, most jobs involve communicating across, you know, all these electronic devices and trying to make sure that your intention is perceived by the the receiver of that the message, and um, that that's what you're doing. You're kind of training them in. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a it's a crazy road you enter when you start having all of these different sorts of relationships through technology and your your friends and you know, is social media a um, replacement for a coffee break? those sorts of things with, with great friends and, and how and where do we um, remember to kind of bring the human aspect back into all of our connecting and right. as busy people doing a lot of different things, you know, back, it's back to humans to make the time back to humans. Yeah. And back to, I think the other interesting point here uh, is that importance of being engaged, of being involved with what they're doing and really knowing what they're up to because you're right some parents have no clue what's going on with some of this stuff and it's important to at least on some level know what's happening uh and it's the same thing when you're designing for someone or when you're working with a, a client or a group to not just lob something over a wall and say here's a solution don't call me about it just <laughs> just here, here's, here are the rules follow them but is it's let's work together to find something that works for us in our specific situation and you can't arrive at that kind of solution unless you really are engaged and active in your work. Well, it sounds like a good parent to be like a good boss at a a company, right? To keep people engaged, uh, pay attention to what your kids are doing so you can give them either positive or negative feedback, lead them on to the next task. I think there are all kinds of great workplace skills that you gain from being a parent. Another one is time management, in my case, because you learn to really value and treasure any time that you can have by yourself at home. And that, for me, has translated into becoming a lot more productive as an employee, setting goals and uh, achieving things. I've become much better at project management after well, having kids. When I think the flexibility, the nature of, um, you know, Murphy's law, like what's going to go wrong as we're going out the door is going to go wrong. And my coffee cup's going to end up all over the floor. And apparently spaghetti sauce wanted to fall out of the fridge this morning as we have three minutes to get on the bus. So I think <laughs> parenting, adding the dynamic of, um, you know, little ones into your life does kind of show you some of those flexibility modes in that translates into being a good boss, being able to think on your toes, handle, um, you know, stress in a whole nother way and really remember what's important here. And does that project absolutely need to be done? Or can we just communicate to all the humans involved? Like, hey, there's a lot going on and here's why things are shifting. And if you tell the why, most often you're going to get greeted with a great response. But if you just give a, I can't, or this can't happen, or we're missing deadline, then you get reaction of, no, you can't miss my deadline, get it done, stay all night, do all of these things. And I'm a huge advocate for letting um, employees have think time. Uh, it's such an important, important lost art of being able to like take a break um, and breathe. And a lot of times people just keep going and going and going. And are you creating your best work if you haven't like stepped away a little bit? What, how do you feel about naps at work? 
Um, I would be a big fan. I wish I could nap. I cannot nap. I cannot. I'm. It's impossible for you, me. You can't nap? I can't nap. It's not that you're not allowed to. No, I just... It's just that you're... I mean, somebody might wonder, but <laughs> we don't have napping rooms at BI. I know some companies are starting to invest in that. Are, are you promoting? We do have yoga, so three do- times a week. So I feel like that's kind of a nap if you're not super athletic. I sometimes use yoga as a bit of a nap. Well, you're talking about meditation. You could get into a pose and pretend and, and sleep. Yeah, see that, that through an exercise I can maybe sleep. But yeah, no, napping is not something I've ever done well, so... Gosh, well, uh, I I can nap anytime, any place. I'm jealous. Me too. I can't turn my brain off without drugs. Well, that's that's how it is. Is that I've learned how to turn my brain off. Maybe that's what it is. What now? uh, You're going to be both speakers at the Yellow Summit on uh, September the 14th. What do you imagine? Who do you imagine your audience will be? That's a great question. Um, as a user experience designer, I should be thinking about this, right? My audience, who I'm speaking to. Um, what I'm envisioning and, and what I've also talked about with Kurt, who's one of the organizers, um, is mostly either creative individuals and you know creativity. We haven't really talked about what does creativity mean. This is a whole huge topic of its own. Um, you can be creative in whatever you do, I firmly believe. Um, and so however you define that as a creative person, having chosen to attend yellow, um, speaking either to that personal projects or those who are there on behalf of an organization or just as part of an organization that's doing some kind of, uh, creative work. And my core thesis of my talk is that you can take some of these principles of user experience design and apply them to get better results with whatever it is that you're doing. So, the main hope for my talk is that people can take something that's actually actionable. Um, I'm going to present be presenting a few different concepts along with the sort of basic high-level steps for how you would go about that and encouraging people who attend my talk to just pick one of them and try it and just see how it goes. Because again, like I said, that's the way that you learn is by right. trying and maybe failing, but maybe succeeding. And what's your topic? So my entire thesis is about an empty toilet paper roll. So um, I like to pull comedy into anything that I do. I feel like there's a way to engage through through some comedy. So my entire talk track is about an empty toilet paper roll. So you'll have to come and hear it. But that that's where uh, I kind of tie empathy through our through our daily lives. But um, there are those who find the empty toilet paper roll and there are those who never experience that and you have to think of which side are you on this all sounds pretty vague is this a, like a big tease you it gotta is. come to I find mean, out you gotta what, come find out but gotta, really no truly my entire talk track is around an empty toilet paper roll huh. but like i said i've never done this before but i'm expecting an engaged audience <laughs> i think people that have um Engaged with Yellow, purchased a ticket, know that this is one of those opportunities where we're we're thinking and growing together as a community. So I'm hoping for a lot of engagement, a lot of questions, a lot of talking back and forth. And sometimes in Minnesota, that's hard to pull that out. Um, and I know a lot of a lot of people want to just sit and absorb. Um, but I'm encouraging, at least in my talk, we'll be encouraging some some conversation. Let's talk about well, it. Good. Well, let's hope at least that your audience empathize with both of you. I'd like to uh, thank you for being on our podcast here, Synapse Think Tank of the Air. I think we did a lot of thinking here. Yeah. So, uh, we'll wrap that up now and say farewell. And I'd like to thank also our producer, Dan Cook, and 
and uh, as well as our guests, Andy Kruger and Christina Fortier. I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.